Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Ryan Breslow, founder and chairman of Bolt. Bolt provides a one-click checkout solution and is valued at $11 billion. Whoa. Ryan, welcome to World of DAS. Warren, it's great to be here. Great to see you. You got some like famous Twitter threads that I thought we could like dive into a little bit. You have one thread about Approva Meta, who was ousted from Instacart, and you had this thread about how it's kind of unfair. But a lot of these firms like Sequoia and Benchmark are kind of well known for firing founders. So isn't it just kind of like caveat emptor for founders who choose to take their money? As you said, I'm not pointing out anything that should be shocking. This is par for the course. And a lot of these firms have built their reputations on heavily managing the company, which I think is part of what they're good at, but ultimately getting it to an exit potentially sometimes quicker than a founder may want. So I think we see this friction point between an IPO desire between big investors like that and founders and things like this end up happening. It's old news, what you're tweeting about in some ways. Exactly. It's old news. It shouldn't be surprising and been happening since the beginning of time. I'm kind of a big believer of founder-led startups, but aside for like negligence or unethical behavior, like what are the big scenarios you think replacing a founder is necessary? I think if it becomes clear that the founder is unable to get the business to the next level and they're clearly incapable of doing so, I don't believe that In this case, Instacart or several other notable cases that we've seen, those were the case. I think if they have some concerns with a stylistic characteristic of a Purva, I think that could be coached. I don't think it requires getting rid of the CEO. In fact, I think this is one of the most capable CEOs and founders that Silicon Valley has seen in the last decade or so. You kind of just replaced yourself as CEO and Reid Hoffman did something similar as CEO of LinkedIn. Like, How should founders think about replacing themselves? That one is simple. If you have somebody on your team that could do the job just as good as you, if not better, then you it's should- It's a no-brainer. A no-brainer. And that's the best for the company. Like They're going to do a better job. And Exactly. So I had a bunch of people ask me, they're like, oh, this seems like an amazing move. I have zero direct reports now. I can just purely- be additive to the company without managerial burden on myself. So it's obviously a very desirable place to be and it's very beneficial to the company. But what I tell them is that's because I'm partners with Maju. Like if it wasn't for this person specifically who is so ridiculously talented, ran global logistics at Amazon and worldwide fulfillment. And it's just, it's because of him that I even had this idea in the first place. I was never thinking or contemplating about doing this. I was thinking I would be CEO of Bolt for potentially the rest of my life. And then somebody happened to come along that was just light years ahead of anyone else that I'd worked with. Interesting. Okay. Reed's case at LinkedIn, I think he did have the intention of wanting to give up the CEO. And so I think he specifically recruited Jeff Weiner, who ultimately replaced him as CEO with that intention in mind. Do you think that isn't a good plan for founders? Or Well, now in hindsight, I think it's a great thing because now I think it's hard to be a creative 
external facing leader where, you know, I do a lot of vision cultures, big sales and an internal operational execution powerhouse. It's almost impossible for somebody to do both of those things. And so there's many different permutations of this. It could be a Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl at Facebook, where Mark is able to be more of the visionary and Cheryl runs the operational excellence. But he still has a ton of direct reports, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I've seen co-CEO situations work out well, like a friend at Brex, where they do this really well, Enrique and Pedro, they do exceptionally well. And then you could do what I've done, which is empower a full CEO replacement and step into an executive chairman role. You've got a bunch of other famous Twitter threads that I want to dive into. And by the way, I encourage everyone to follow you on Twitter. You're a great tweeter. And you got one on Stripe and YC and what you call the Silicon Valley mob. It's kind of been the talk of the town for the last few months. And you argued in the Twitter thread that Stripe deliberately took capital from the top VCs to prevent them from funding other competitive payments companies, which is kind of like in the old days of like hiring every law firm in town. So they couldn't work for your competitor or something. But like, first of all, in some ways, like that seems like a brilliant move. And saying like, do you think that was like something they intended to do? I think everything you said, my answer is yes to. It was (laughs) a brilliant move. It was something they intended to do. And yes, it's been going on since as far as the eye can see, it's kind of become a best practice. Now, as somebody who is coming in, building a payments company in Silicon Valley, I was blocked out of most of Silicon Valley. So I think all I was doing was pointing out the obvious to the next generation who are coming in who think they're going to do something in payments. If you're considering starting a payments company out here, it was kind of a warning of caution that you're going to have these headwinds. YC was in Stripe, but they've invested in other payments companies over the years, haven't they? Even after they help incubate or invest in Stripe. Yes and no. I think they've done some internationally in markets that Stripe clearly isn't playing in at the moment. I think anything that is too close to home for them, I don't believe that they have. Obviously, please correct me if I'm wrong, but there was another company in the early days called Balanced Payments, which was another, I believe they were a YC-backed company. And there are a million stories. I have a ton of people reaching out to me. It's like giving me their story because I'm like (laughs) a person they could tell because they kind of trust me. And so there is a whole bunch of controversy between the relationship there with YC, that company, and then Stripe and how that company ended up going under. I don't think it was complete rainbows and sunshine like out in the open competition. In some ways, like part of the thread was this was made it hard for Bolt to raise money, but Bolt's raised money really well. I mean, you're one of the best fundraisers of all time. In some ways, like you could even make a case you've raised ahead of the company where it was going. It's not like you got like bad valuations or anything for any of your raises. I mean, they were like incredible raises. Is it just that you had to look for like alternative sources of money or something? Or because there is a lot of pots of money out there. That is one of the things I've learned, thankfully. One of the other messages that I'm trying to convey is there's way more money out in the world than we think about as founders in Silicon Valley. 
We think of like the who's who Sandhill Road firms. And we think that raising money from them is great. We think that's all the money that there is. And what I've learned is there's so many other great pockets of money, and many of which could be a much better cultural fit for your business than these other institutions where there could be some great partners, but there also could be some partners who come in with a healthy amount of ego and could cause some issues for your business. So I say go elsewhere for money. Let's not go in with this bias of we need only tier one Sandhill road firms to fund our companies. Then oftentimes you can get partners who are far more supportive of the business. We're talking right now in May, 2022. In the last six months, we've seen valuations come down by 50% plus for most well-known tech companies. How do you think that is going to affect these companies kind of going forward? I think there's a decent chance we're in for tough times ahead. I mean, we're already facing that. Today, that's the reality today as we speak. And I think you have to take that into account when you're building. I think we're going to see a lot of companies doing cuts. I think we're going to see a lot of companies leaning out as a smart thing to do, building paths towards profitability. And you have to kind of hope for the best, prepare for the worst, and operate as if this lull is going to continue or potentially even leads to a recession. Now, back to YC, you have another thread about how you just didn't think YC is worth it, or maybe it used to be worth it, but it's no longer worth it. But still, some of the best world's famous founders swear by YC. Do you think it's not worth it for like a certain class of founder, but might still be worth it for a first-time founder? Like, Because one of the benefits is you get to sell to a lot of other YC companies. There's a network, raise money faster. Yeah. So what Y Combinator will do is they will help kickstart your network in Silicon Valley. So if you have no network, it's helpful in that. Is that worth 7% of your company? That's what I argued, no. Because you could hire somebody for a couple points in your company to be your Sherpa or something. Exactly. You can come in, you could start attending founder events. I just did a great talk at one last night where there's this amazing community building. And so you can start hosting your own events after you build a little bit of a network. And so building a network is something that can be done. I know so many friends who came to Silicon Valley with nothing and knowing nobody. They came in, they met people, they built a great network. And once you have that network, you should be able to fundraise from there. And so I wrote a book called Fundraising, which is... Which I read. Great book. Thank you. And I was at this event last night and probably had a hundred founders come up to me saying that they read this book and it changed their lives. And so I think now you have this book that you can follow, like the process is laid out. If you follow the process and you build your network and you leverage that network for introductions, I don't think that you need YC. And then on top of that, as, as I said, if there are founders who are particularly helpful to you, give them a little bit of equity. If there are people in the community that are helpful to you, give them a little bit, make them a part of the team. I think you can get way more traction that way than YC 7%, which is really just to help you get you through your seed round. And if you're a good founder, you should be able to get through your seed round without them. Interesting. Y Combinator, they're a very powerful, amazing institution. They're one of the very few venture capital players that is a price maker. Almost all other venture capital firms are price takers. 
in some ways, I think it's the best venture capital business around. Like, how do you think of them as like a business? It's a phenomenal business. They get 7% on now, what is it, like 400 companies at a time for doing so little. So I think that that equity could be going to better recipients. I think that founders could be giving that equity away in a better way. I've just talked to so many founders who are like, yeah, they have 7%. They didn't really do too much, but then they don't want to upset the institution. And so they kind of say good things. Why do you think YC hasn't had a ton of competitors? Like if you went to Stanford, Stanford has all these competitors. You can go to Princeton or Yale or Harvard and Stanford doesn't have a complete monopoly on all the best students and stuff. But if you think of YC, like if you got into YC, you're probably going to YC over the next accelerator. You're only going to other accelerators if you usually don't get to, into YC. Why are they so dominant? It's a great question. I mean, listen, I think the people who started it were definitely forces of nature. Paul Graham and Sam Allman. Yeah, they're incredible people. Yeah, they're forces of nature. So I don't think anyone formidable has decided to start an accelerator. I think if somebody who's a force of nature, like many of the top founders out here decided to do this, they could easily compete. Interesting. A few months out, like how do you think the fallout is from this thread they put together? I know a lot of people weighed in from like Mark Andreessen, as you mentioned, Sam Altman and Paul Graham weighed in as well. Like how those reactions surprised you? I think it only validated my claims in terms of they were so upset by this or felt so uncomfortable that they kind of said these rash below the line comments. So I think their reaction said everything to me. You know, you can tell a lot about someone by how they react. And I think that this thread marked the beginning of a cultural shift. Like it was such a powerful thread. It was so talked about. It was so. Yeah. Why do you think it got so much traction? I was, I was watching the thread and all of a sudden it just like blew up. A lot of threads, like people put them out there and they got a couple of likes and they die. This one really, really took off. Yeah. I think for something to be controversial, it has to have some elements of truth. And so I wrote from a place, this thing was so ridiculous, but it was also so true. And so many others had similar experiences. Like I've got hundreds and hundreds of people reaching out to me saying, thank you for doing this. You know, I'm not at a stage where I could speak out publicly, but I'm so grateful that you did. It means a lot. Were you sitting on this for like a couple of years? And then one day you're like, had a few drinks and you're like, I'll put it out there. Or like, how did it happen? Yeah, I wrote it up a couple of years ago. And one day I was just, I don't know. I don't even know what got me to post. I was just like, Bolt, I'm so confident in my business, which I think is what scares so many people. We have a highly disruptive business and things are going so well at Bolt that I decided now if I don't speak up, who's going to be able to speak up? Like I'm finally in a privileged position where I have great backers, great capital, great business. I'm not going to become a sellout and go make friends with all these people that have I think, tried to ruin us, frankly. So I'm going to actually speak up. Interesting. Well, a couple more questions just about like Bolt and company building. You also had another tweet thread of that, like board dysfunctions are one of the biggest company killers. 
What do you think are some of like the early signs? Like what are the leading indicators of dysfunctional boards or kind of like counterproductive board members? I think that misaligned interests ruin most good things. And I'm not saying the founder is always in the right. For me, when I'm building a company, I'm extremely long-term. I make all my decisions with that perspective. Some investors may come in and not be as long-term. Some investors may come in and be more risk-averse, or, hey, you've got the company to this stage. Let's preserve value and keep the company here, maybe go up a little bit. But like they start to want to preserve the value that has been created and minimize risk versus going for the next step, going for the next reason. I've seen it go the opposite way. I've seen founders also who want to minimize risk at a certain point, either because most of their net worth is tied up in this thing. And so that's another, which is a reasonable thing for someone to do at that point. Exactly. So all these conflicts, and I'm not saying the investor is always right or the founder is always right, start from these fundamental misalignments. And so that's why I published on my website this pledge for investors and founders, this partnering pledge, where you write up, hey, these are my intentions with the business. And are you fundamentally aligned with this approach to building? And you can build that mutual bind before you go into a relationship to where I think it will prevent a lot of problems down the line. Okay. Interesting. No, you built this kind of like co-op of sorts with merchant data. And I'm a big fan of data co-ops. That's one of the things we talk about a lot at World of DAS. They generally end up being like win-win for everybody. Initially, were like merchants resistant to making their checkout experience part of a larger network? And how do you kind of get them over the hump? Yes. And that's why Bull was such a tough business to build because we had this chicken and egg problem where we need merchants to join our network to get enough critical mass. And only when we have enough critical mass Will the network be compelling enough to merchants? So what we had to do was build a highly compelling software product independent from the network. So single player mode type of thing. Exactly. So we call that our checkout operating system, which in and of itself is a very important company that provides a lot of value to merchants who are building their own transactional infrastructure, payment integrations, alternate payment methods, loyalty, couponing, discounts. We provide all of that checkout infrastructure to small to very large enterprise companies on a silver platter so they don't have to build it themselves. And we also provide the UI to have a high converting guest checkout experience. And so merchants wanted to use our software before they wanted to use our network. But we said, hey, by using our software, you have to participate in our network. Got to come together. You got no choice. Exactly. Then later they start to see the benefit, but they might not see it for the first year or two. Exactly. In the beginning, merchants just saw the software benefits. Now the network is big enough where we're selling the network as we're leading with that just as much as we're leading with the software. You're also kind of famous for this kind of four-day work week and kind of disliking meeting culture, et cetera. And we've been trying to minimize meetings or do meetings asynchronously at SafeGraph. What's the best either hack or kind of big change in a company culture you think to actually do work over planning or something? Philosophically, I think there is a lot of word I use is work theater in corporate America and globally, which is people working to look like 
they're working versus to have impact. And so in the early days of Bolt, I really valued hard work, like I think is embedded into the Silicon Valley ethos and is important, by the way. But as a company scaled, I found that a lot of people were just virtue signaling how hard they worked and they were wasting a lot of time and not producing results or were overcomplicating results. And I'm like, hey, I wanted you to spend an hour on that. Like you're spending way too long on this. You just thing. want a couple of bullets and you put together this like super deep slide deck or something. Because you want to show me that you're working hard. You're not focused on the right things. You're not focused on the impact you're having to the company's bottom line. And you're wasting a lot of time. So my way to get people to waste less time was to give them less time to work. So I'm like, you have four days to get all your stuff done instead of five. And as a result, you have to be way more conscious, deliberate, intentional, thoughtful about what you're spending those four days actually doing. Because often you can also create work for other people in the company as well. When you're working on the wrong thing, it's not just you who's having a problem, but often you spin up all these other people in the company as well. Exactly. It just got into a point where... I had seen all of this. The worst thing that we could do is we could waste our time and our effort and have our employees burn out over things that aren't even useful to the company. So some people I'd be managing in the early days, and they're like, oh, I did all of these things, X, Y, Z, boom, boom, boom. I'm like, but I asked you to do this thing. And this is the only thing that matters right now. And so why are you doing all these other things? My goal for employees of SafeGraph, I really want like a good 40 hours we can come up with a better number, but a good 40 hours. And for experienced people, they can do 40 hours of work in 40 hours. But less experienced people sometimes need 50 hours to do 40 hours of work. Some people need 60 hours to actually do 40 hours of work. They might need some mentorship to be able to do 40 hours in 40 hours. How do you think about bringing people along? I had a big wake-up call, whereas we had one of our most prolific early engineers that Bolt wouldn't exist without today. He had built Twitter's billing system. His name was Eric Mettins. And he joined us and built a lot of our ledger and all this kind of core financial infrastructure for us. It was really hard to build. And many of us were slaving away, but he wouldn't do it. He's like, I'm coming in at this time. I'm going to be here for eight hours and I'm going to leave. And was our most productive, one of our most productive members of the engineering team. And so that got me thinking differently. It's like, we're all slaving away, but this guy's kicking butt and shipping way more delivery. But do you think like he was able to do that when he was right out of college or is it because he's a very experienced person and have the ability to do that? I think the latter, I think he was experienced and knew how to manage his time well. But the problem was that we're encouraging everybody to just burn out and work a million hours. And so- my shift was, I'm not going to set a burnout person as a role model. I'm going to set him as the role model for everybody. So the young people know- Aspire to be Eric, aspire to be this guy. It's hard because he's amazing, but you should aspire to be this guy who only works 35, 40 hours a week or something. Exactly. And we have to be careful who we choose as a role model. Because if we're choosing a person who's burning out, who's working nights and weekends versus- Eric, 
as the role model, the younger members of the team will start to behave very differently. I mean, because like founders usually do work pretty insane hours. Most of the founders I know of successful companies are working insane hours. And in some ways, they are kind of a role model for the other people in their company. People look to them, people look to mimic them and stuff. So how do you see that tension? I urge leaders to role model the right things. So for me, I want to role model to my team that I am highly present and engaged. I'm not virtue signaling. Not on the phone or not on Twitter while you're in your meetings. Exactly. I'm present and engaged just like I am in this podcast. I want to show up to every meeting present and engaged because I didn't in the past. I used to show up not present, half paying attention. When you're present and engaged, you can take an hour-long meeting. You can get it done in half an hour, 20 minutes. You can start to compress time. So that is something that our leaders should be having on display. In my opinion. Okay. Yeah. I'm certainly guilty of not always being present and engaged. That's a very good point. Okay. This is great. This is amazing. Okay. Last question we ask all of our guests, what is the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice? I think that there's just a lot of bad advice out there. And I think what we don't get told enough, we get told to be like X or like Y or like Z. What we don't get told enough is to be ourselves. Do even most people know who the self is? Right. We're all trying to be like these folklore heroes in Silicon Valley. Steve Jobs. Or- but your superpower is your authenticity. And trying to be like somebody else, it actually may work for a little bit. You may be able to create this like cult of fear-based fake personality. <laughs> we see this all over Silicon Valley. And you hit a glass ceiling. Because really great people will stop working with you. You're not going to be able to hire great executives. I found that the best executives, they want to work with an authentic leader that they can trust. I think the world is waking up from a spiritual perspective. I think our consciousness is rising. I think that folks are tired of getting burnt out or working with people who don't understand themselves and have weird inconsistencies. And so I think authentic leadership is so key. And so not and about most that. people in their twenties, just to be completely generalized, probably don't really know themselves very well. It's one of those things you learn as you get a little bit older. If you're mentoring or giving advice to someone in their twenties and trying to help them find themselves faster, what advice would you give them? There's a lot of things that you can do to find yourself. You spend time with yourself. I know you do that. You spend a lot of time alone, right? Exactly. Whereas my early twenties, I just spent, I was always with other people. And when you're always with other people, mimicking other people, you're not finding yourself. One of the things when you actually look at like most successful founders and you go back to like in high school, what were they doing? They were spending just tons of time alone, tons of time alone. Exactly. And I did that in high school. And so I would say, spend that time alone, go take your hikes or find those hobbies that you can do alone. And that time with yourself is invaluable. That's your superpower. You are the person in charge. You are the reason why people are joining your company. You need to craft the ultimate you by revealing the most authentic expression of yourself. Okay, this is amazing. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us at World of Doubts. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Aaron. Such a pleasure. So much fun. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. 
for more world of das and das is d-a-a-s you can subscribe on spotify or apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts and also check out youtube for videos you can find me at twitter at at oren that's a-u-r-e-n oren and we'd love to hear from you